with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Today's episode covers more of the proceedings from the International Conference on Intelligent Robots and Systems, or IROS for short. The conference was a huge success and we're delighted to be able to share more of the fascinating work that was covered. So today, we'll start with Pauline Pounds, Associate Professor at the University of Queensland. She spoke to our interviewer Audro about building robots that can endure children, including the trade-offs of designing a robot that can survive children's rough play but won't harm them. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Hi, greetings from IROS 2018. Would you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Pauline Pounds. I'm an associate professor in mechatronics at the University of Queensland. Would you tell me about the work that you're presenting here today? So at the conference today, I'm presenting on building child-safe robots, but not just robots that are safe for children, but robots that are safe from children. Why is that? Well, uh, recent studies that have come out from ATR have shown that when left on their own, children are a little bit Lord of the Flies when it comes to robots. And they that means see they're mean to the robots. That means they're case. mean. They can be quite, quite nasty to robots, in fact. So though a lot of time and energy has been put into making robots that are safe for people, not so much effort has been put into the idea of making robots safe from people, especially small people. So <laughs> we're interested in building robots that we can put in a classroom and leave on, it on, on its own. We want something where we can build a robot that's able to interact with small students, small children, or study them in a way that is unobtrusive to do ethnographic uh, research. And in that way, we need to build a robot that's going to survive the classroom environment without necessarily having teacher or adult supervision. So how do you make a robot safe from people? That's a really good question. And it's sort of twofold. First of all, you have to think about how are you going to build something that's big and robust and strong and armored like a tank. And then you realize that the very same things that make it good for survivability actually makes it dangerous for humans. So you have to turn it down a little bit. But if you turn it down too far, suddenly your robot's really weak and brittle and it can't survive the environment. So it's a careful challenge to make sure that you build something that's a capable system whilst also still having the low enough energy for you to be able to do that. So for what we've done is we've figured out what our actual science goals are in terms of carrying 100 gram objects to do give and take experiments with children, as well as having specific speeds and responsiveness to have social attention and animacy, a type of social agency, while still being able to have low enough energy because of the mass is kept low to not be a risk in having children in a peripersonal space environment. Hmm. And what does the robot look like? Well, the robot looks like a very dumpy sort of humanoid torso, um, a little bit legless, um, in fact, entirely legless. But the great thing about that is it has the proportions of a real adult human, but an eye level that's on the same or slightly lower than some children. And as a consequence, the children are not as intimidated by the robot than they might otherwise be. We're very careful to build in natural animation cycles into the robot during idle, so that when they see the robot for the first time, it doesn't look strange or inanimate, what and is then a suddenly natural start moving. animation cycle? A natural animation cycle is something where when the robot's not doing something, it's actually going through little movements, little motions, just swaying the arm slightly, turning its head. So it looks as if it's a thing that's alive already. It doesn't suddenly spurt to life and start moving in a way that startles or scares. 
Gotcha. Are they environmental? Like, does it consider the environment at all, or is it purely random? Um, for, our, for our motion cycles, it's purely random. It's merely just a way of showing some lower level of motion and animacy ah. without having something that creates a sudden change in the dynamic the, the child would encounter. Okay. And has it survived children so far? Surprisingly well. In fact, I'm very pleased to say that after being exposed to 10 students over a variety of trials, our robot has not suffered any damage nor even required calibration. And the students were really quite rough with it. The children were slapping the robot, doing high fives and low fives, which they are encouraged to do by our experimenter. Yep. And they and were so that slapping creates a big arms. impact for us. Oh, absolutely. What? It's being hit by a child. Definitely. And children can be very aggressive, especially during play. Even if they don't mean to be mean or ill-behaved, just rambunctiousness can mean a lot of force applied to your robot. Definitely. Is it a series elastic actuator setup you have for no, some deformation? No, it's not actually. Or what kind it's of... actually fully back drivable. The idea oh. being that the energy exerted by the servos is set to a very particular limit so that above a certain force level, the whole system gives. will slip. It'll all give. But it's designed in such a way so that the mass of the arms is not enough so that during power failure or a student pulling down on the robot arm, that would swing down with enough velocity to cause harm. Why, why is that advantageous to a series elastic setup? So series elastic, the energy doesn't go away. It's still there. It's yeah, just it'll stored back. in the form. It'll bounce back. So in fact, you can get higher momentum transfers if you're not careful with SEAs uh, than if you have something that simply gives and takes energy gotcha. out of the so system. So it just absorbs the energy. That's correct. And dissipates it, basically. That's right. There's a little bit of springiness in there, which yeah. is a natural part of the compliance of having a very lightweight uh, serial manipulator mechanism, but okay. not enough that it's a major concern for safety. Very cool. And um, what is the future direction with this? Well, this is actually about our fourth version. You mentioned Lord of the Flies. Yep. Is it going that far? We are very interested to see actually how this performs in the wild with <laughs> with students, wild students, wild children yep. uh, playing with our robot. And we'd love to put them into classrooms and start finding out what non-supervised behaviors the children will exhibit towards our robots because we would really like to see whether we can we can survive that that classroom jungle thank you thank you very much Audra also caught up with Philip Morere, a PhD student at the University of Sydney. They spoke about continuous, partially observable Markov decision processes with Monte Carlo sampling, including the intuition behind the piece of work Morere is focusing on and the problems that he has already solved using his approach. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Hi, I'm Philip Morere from the University of Sydney and I work on trajectory planning. And what was the work you were presenting today? Um, today I was presenting work on continuous uh, state action observation uh, pump DPs for trajectory planning using Bayesian optimization. Mm-hmm. Now why... So normally your action space is, is continuous in this case. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, um, so planning in um, continuous action spaces is quite difficult in general, um, especially uh, if you use classic uh, from DP planning algorithms such as Monte Carlo's research, these algorithms are only designed to deal with discrete actions. Mm-hmm. And so our work extends uh, this type of algorithm to deal with continuous action spaces. Mm-hmm. And how does it do that? So it does that by um, sampling actions dynamically at each node of the Monte Carlo research. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to be clear, Monte Carlo research is what? Sorry. 
so Monte Carlo Research is an algorithm to um, plan in PomDP, so to solve PomDP. Mm-hmm. Um, and a PomDP is a partially observable Markov decision process? That's right, it is, yeah. Which m- makes a Markov assumption, which is that the past... The <laughs> basically, the past doesn't matter. Everything is in the current state. Yeah. And the current state can be used to predict the future. Yeah, that's right. So all of the information you need to know about the current state of things is uh, in the state. So if mm-hmm. you know your current state, then that's enough to uh, choose the action optimally. Uh-huh. And the partially observable part of POMDP is meaning that you don't have full observation of your state. Like, you can't observe everything that's actually happening. You can guess at it. That's right. You only get part of the information and um, so what's needed in this case is you need to um, have some kind of belief over what the state is. So from getting new observations, you can refine what you think the state is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what makes a PomDP harder than a regular Markov decision process. Yes. Okay. And then so with this PomDP setup, when you have your tree, sir, tell me a bit about how it relates to that. Yeah. So um, the Monte Carlo tree search uh, basically builds a tree by uh, generating futures. Uh, so you start from your current state and then you simulate um, what different actions would do, so the, the effects, and what state you would end up in. And starting from there, you can continue simulating different actions. And so that is actually building a tree into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tree, all of the, I don't know, all of the nodes beneath the top one, the root one, are going to be what happens if you take different actions. That's right. There would be uh, different um, so it's like states. different paths you could different, take. That's right. So the, each branch of the tree would be a path in the state space, mm-hmm. basically. And so discrete actions, this would be like if I was in a video, playing a video game, it could be like forward, right, left. Now it's discrete, but if you want to make it continuous, it could be any angle between everything of what you're heading. So right, all, like basically the top part of a unit circle, if we're yeah. talking about it that way. Yeah, that's, that's right, yeah. And so uh, continuous actions are especially useful if you are dealing with trajectories because you might not want to um, you know, restrict yourself to a bunch of uh, predefined trajectories. You might want to have very um, precise tra- trajectories that will allow you to maneuver mm-hmm. uh, and will uh, give you better precision in your actions. Gotcha. Okay, and then how do you do this? So how, how do you work with the continuous space? You said sampling. What's happening there? Yeah, um, so... We build on the uh, classic Monte Carlo research algorithms. And so when you build this, this tree we are talking about, um, at each node, you can sample actions using Bayesian optimization, mm-hmm. which is a technique that will allow you to um, explore your action space, so like try actions that are very different from what you've tried before, yep. and also retry actions that are similar to the ones you found uh, works, work great. Mm-hmm. And so when you do this sampling in your action space, what you're going to do is you're going to increase your confidence in the area that you sample, and it's going to, um, well, with the with you increasing your confidence at these points, then you can sample in between the points you have to start increasing your confidence everywhere so you know what will happen if you choose different values at a different for your trajectory that's right yeah ultimately if you sample everywhere then your confidence gets uh, high everywhere and then you know what each action leads to mm-hmm. uh, but 
you don't actually want to sample everywhere mm -hmm. either because otherwise you spend too much time and too much uh, computational resources on, on trying actions. So you kind of have this trade-off and, and you need to stop at some point uh, when you are confident enough that some specific action is, is good for the problem. Gotcha. Okay. And then uh, what kind of settings have you actually tried this in? Um, so all of the settings we uh, tried it on were based on um, trajectory planning. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we can generate um, continuous trajectories for robots to execute. Um, so the, we tried this on a space modeling problem where a robot needs to navigate in an environment and take samples okay. um, of any kind of environment variable you can think of. So in this case, uh, you can take the example of pollution, for example. Um, so the robot moves around with a pollution, with an air quality sensor and, oh. and takes a, takes a pollution sample. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, it takes air quality samples uh, while moving around, and it needs to uh, build a map of pollution, the pollution. And so it moves around, explores, uh, builds the map, refines the map, and then tries to move back to the areas where pollution is high um, to have better quality measurements. Okay. And. Um all right, so that was one thing you so, tested. So that was uh, our first uh, problem mm -hmm. where, so in this example, there were obstacles. And uh, we found that if you use discrete trajectories, then it doesn't allow you uh, to navigate in between obstacles because you, um, the robots will not have enough motion precision to find a way. Is this in a grid world or something? Um, no, it's, it's fully continuous. So ah. if everything is continuous in, in, our, in our case. Gotcha. So it's um, a simulation world with like round objects and things? Uh, so yeah, objects are square, but yeah, it is a simulation <laughs> world. Uh, so it's a 2D simulation yeah, world. But all real values for everything. All real values for everything. States are continuous and observations okay. are continuous. And, and of course, actions are continuous. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and so... Uh, and you designed the world in such a way that if it moved in kind of a, with a discrete action space that it would get stuck? Um, yeah. So, and so you were able to do it again, but successfully with a continuous action space. Is it yeah, true? Yeah, that's right. So there's a, there's a small corridor between obstacles that, uh, that the robot using discrete actions will not be able to navigate in or, ah. yeah, in general, will not find a way through the corridor. Whereas with continuous action spaces, you can uh, the robot will actually find... Uh, its way through and uh, go to the other side of the obstacles and then gather better rewards and, and therefore uh, score better performance. Mm -hmm. Then we have another problem which is um, a car parking problem. So mm -hmm. that's a problem where you have a parking spot and a, the robot needs to park in that parking spot in basically the same way you would park your car in the street. Yeah. And so you need, so it has this restriction in motion that it cannot turn too much but it can go forward and reverse. Mm -hmm. And so by going forwards and reversing and turning, it can maneuver its way to uh, the, the, the spot, the parking spot. Yes. Um, yeah, and, and we found the same thing here again, that uh, you cannot maneuver well enough using discrete actions, and, and that's where continuous actions have an edge. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a large, a high-dimensional state space with this that your trajectory is in, um, using your current method, do you have a lot of trouble? Like if you bring it up to a lot of dimensions... Is it very yeah. slow to optimize, is you, it, or do you have to do a lot of sampling? Yeah, if you if you deal with very high dimensional spaces, you, in, with I, th I think all methods I can think of, you'll yes, suffer from true. the curse of dimensionality, and uh, yeah, you'd be in trouble basically. Gotcha. Uh, but yeah, uh, in our examples, we uh, we deal with three dimensional um, action spaces, mm -hmm. um, and it, it was faster than discretizing uh, 
the world into uh, discrete actions. Nice. Okay. Uh, what's your future work direction along these lines? Um, along these lines, uh, not much. This is actually kind of work that I've left oh, yes. uh, because I've moved to a more reinforcement learning side of things. Ah, okay. um, yeah, so instead of just planning, now I'm more interested in uh, learning the dynamics and the reward function ah. uh, at the same time, uh, which is kind of like a broader view of, of the problem, I'd say. Gotcha. Thank you. Thank you. And for our final interview of the day, Audra spoke to Yu Yung Liu, an MS student from the National Taiwan University, about a painting robot that can produce portraits. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Hi. Would you introduce yourself? My name is Yu Zhang Liu, and I'm from the National Taiwan University. Would you tell me about the work you've presented today? Yes, today. I'm presenting my work like uh, robot artists. We are combining the robot and the art together to perform a kind of style facial portrait painting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Portrait painting. Yes. It's a portrait uh, painting. So, what does the whole setup look like? What is that? So you take a picture of the person. Yes, I take the picture and I input the uh, JPG file to the computer, and the robot can paint by itself. Yes. And so then you have a robot arm, and the robot yes, arm holds a paintbrush, yes. and then you have a camera on the arm yes. uh, right near the paintbrush yes. so that it can see what it's doing. Yes, it is. And it mixes colors and things itself. Yes, it makes five colors, which is like a painting, a printing machine, like mm -hmm. CMYK. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And then, uh, so how do you get the image that you're going to paint? Did I get the image? So you take the picture of the person. Yes. Uh, and then how do you... Because it, it creates a cartoony picture yes. of the person. Some, how do you do that? Um, image processing skill and the computer, computer image learning skill, which is uh, use uh, compose the facial features mm -hmm. using the explicit shape regression, which is uh, work by uh, Microsoft. Ah. One of the papers. Yes. Gotcha. And, and we use the... Uh, color segmentation so reduce the complexity of the colors I like this look like more like cartoon style because in our real life they were more 3D like so in cartoon style is 2D yes is and then we paint the uh, cartoon facial features okay uh, yeah through our database okay so you first uh, you're going to figure out the shape of the face yes and then you figure out the tone of the face and things like this. Yes. Uh, and then you figure out the facial features. Feature. And the facial features, what you do is you compare the similarity yes. of um, the actual features. So you identify their just, eye. Yeah, just uh, okay. each eye and just a, a pitch of the, the facial features. Because uh, human eye and cotton, cotton eye. Yes. How do you compare the similarities there? It's just the... Uh, uh, paper in CVPR in 2015 is yes. computational learning, and it's used a two-channel network okay. and the surrounding inputs. So, yes, it's very uh, sensitive to the uh, image. It's very good for us to use this. this one. Yes. Got you. How does it work exactly? So you put in the two images, yes. and um, it's going to figure out how right, similar they are. Yes. Ah. It's very simple. And it uses a convolutional neural network it's to do this, and it outputs um, a similarity. A basically a value between 0 yes. and 1 or minus 1 and yes, 1 yes, yes. and then you take you do that with all of them yeah. and then you figure out the max yeah. of that and then you take that 
Yes, I take the uh, most similar. The most theme, similar. Yeah. Gotcha. Very cool. Thank you. Uh, what? So, where does this go in the future? What's the, the next future. steps? Next step, we want to uh, create more styles, not just only cartoon style, also uh, like non photorealistic painting or um, like Picasso, uh, something like that styles. Gotcha. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's it from the proceedings at IROS. We just have one more IROS episode left, covering interviews from more of the exhibitors in two weeks' time. But we also have some longer interviews in store that our interview Audrey managed to do with some of the delegates at the conference that we can look forward to. If you can't wait that long, just visit robohub.org forward slash podcast for plenty more robot-related podcasts, news, views and features. And if you would like to support the team behind the podcast to ensure we can continue to bring you exciting coverage from events such as IROS, you could consider becoming a patron. You can give as much or as little as you like. Everything counts towards sending interviewers such as Audro to the key conferences in the robotics world. Our current Patreon campaign is raising funds to enable us to send someone to the International Conference on Robotics and Automation, ICRA, in Canada next May. Check out robohub.org forward slash podcast to find out more. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Iros with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.